as I was interviewing with the Cartoon Network people to come over and start the studio, even though Linda was like, yeah, come over and start the studio, I, I had to meet, I hadn't, I didn't really know Mike Glazow at the time. I didn't really know Betty at the time because I was working for Hanna-Barbera, which was Fred. So Fred was really the interface with all those folks. But I knew Linda because she was more of a day-to-day -day person. But, and of course I knew Gendy. But as I was getting ready to go over and start the studio, I had dinner with Gendy. And I remember at that dinner specifically, I said to Gendy, Look, Andy, what do you what do you want? Like, what are you what are you gonna what are you looking for in the studio? What would you want? Um, what would you want it to be like? And he said, he said, I just want there to be a good vibe. Hmm. And I never forgot those words. And and to me, ultimately, that meant a good culture, and make sure that you know the culture was right for the creative. And that's exactly what they weren't getting on the Warner side, what they had on the Hanna-Barbera side. Because on the Hanna-Barbera side, you know, there was, again, so much history with Hanna-Barbera. Everybody, it was really, it was a great place to work because you really knew you were part of a historical place. You know, the Hanna-Barbera studio was a historical place. And everyone loved working there. There's, you know, I don't think there's anybody that passed through Hanna-Barbera stores that wasn't wasn't sort of in awe of this place they're working at because as you're saying cartoon was sort of your your childhood i can tell you hannah barbera was my childhood right so that was you know for me that was my childhood so to ultimately come into the studio where those cartoons were made and they were in that studio since the 60s so to come into that studio where those cartoons were made was you know nothing short of like spectacular to be there yeah. so Hey guys, it's your host Julian. Before I do a little bit of the episode breakdown, I wanted to say that there will be two clips that we added after this video was recorded with my guest this week, former general manager of Cartoon Network Studios, Brian Miller. In this episode we chat the early days of Cartoon Network Studios and how a culture was developed and built over the years, the mergers that happened while Brian was there, JG Quintel earning a lifetime achievement award at the age of 30, and so much more. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Brian Miller. Brian, how are you, sir? I'm well. How are you? Uh, fantastic, man. So we just passed the 30th anniversary of Cartoon Network. You had a huge part in the 30th anniversary. Well, not so much the 30th anniversary, but the 20 years, 21 years, excuse me, that you were uh, you were there at Cartoon Network, man. So when you hear that 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 network, that name come up, Cartoon Network, man, what is it, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? I mean, for me, Cartoon Network was always about um, the freedom of creativity and the ability to allow people to be creative and as a result, create some of the best programming that I've ever worked on, for sure. Absolutely, man. I can't agree more. It, I said it so many times throughout these podcasts, the Cartoon Network was like my moral compass. It was the network for me. It was my favorite channel of all time. I mean, getting to to sit back and just watch what what these guys and gals created and what you guys helped foster that that culture, if you will, uh, at Cartoon Network. It seemed seemed fun. It seemed like it was meant just for kids, man. It didn't matter uh, what the cartoon was about. But when I was growing up, man, there was no place I wanted to be 
on a Friday night than sitting my ass right on my couch watching whatever cartoon cartoon was popping up that day, man. Um, so taking a step back, man, uh, how did you get to Cartoon Network? And for the fans that might not know your story, how did you end up at Cartoon Network? Wow. Okay, well, let's see. So I spent a lot of years at a company called Deke Animation, mm-hmm. which was... Um, People may remember Inspector Gadget, Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, I mean, hundreds of shows. I mean, ultimately, Deke was at that time in the 80s, 90s, was really the studio that most of their programming was based on existing IP. So it was based on toys. It was based on... Uh, maybe characters in movies. Um, it was always usually based on something else. That was the business model. So I was a Deke for 10 years. I mean, that's really where I, I, I probably learned more there than anywhere because it was a company where they never had a lot of money. You worked on a shoestring budget and you did as you, you did the best you could do on very little money. So anywhere from the, going anywhere from there was only, you know, easier because if you can do it for nothing, you can do it when you can start to spend a little money yeah. and do it better. So, so Deke was amazing. And I, I did that, like I said, for 10 years. And then I was recruited actually by Fred Seibert to come over to Hanna-Barbera. At the time, Hanna-Barbera, this was 96 at the time Hanna-Barbera was doing uh, the new adventures of Johnny Quest and it was um, it was in peril (laughs) they were millions of dollars over budget and um, and Fred was looking for somebody to come in as a head of production at the time to to help kind of set it on course and um and really help with the new uh, the new series for Cartoon Network at that time. Mm-hmm. So we were the the first originals were going on at that same time. So we had um, we had Dexter uh, still in production. Um, actually, it was Powerpuff going into Dexter, right? So it was Powerpuff first going. No, Dexter going into Powerpuff. Yeah, yeah Dexter going into Powerpuff, and then we had Bravo going on at the time. We had Cow and Chicken going on at the time. Uh, we had the cartoon cartoon or the what a cartoon shorts uh, at the same time. We had Johnny Quest. So it was a it was a rare time uh, at Hanna-Barbera and it was during the early stages of the originals for Cartoon Network. So while Cartoon Network did launch in 92, I don't think the first original premiered until 95, maybe? maybe yeah, 95, yeah, yeah, I think Dexter premiered in 95. So I came on the following year and really early in the following year and um, everything was still, was still some stuff hadn't premiered, Cow and Chicken hadn't premiered, uh, Bravo hadn't premiered at that point. So, but Fred brought me over and, um, and I was there for two years until they, they ended up selling or merging, I would say, Turner merged with Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. and um, that was when Warner Brothers took over. And there's a bit of irony to this, the tale because ultimately Warner Brothers shut down Hanna-Barbera mm-hmm. and took all of those productions and moved them into Warner Animation at that time. 
and um, as a result, my job was eliminated because they had they had teams that were doing exactly what we did. So they just basically took our productions and moved them over to uh, to Warner Animation, and I left. I did a very small stint um, working at Spumco, working with uh, John Kay. I worked out, specifically, I worked on a short, um, which was a short that we had had in production while I was at Hanna-Barbera. And that's how I met John and the folks at Spumco, which was called Boo Boo Runs Wild. Mm -hmm. So I went over there and worked there for a couple of months um, when it, till I got a call from Nickelodeon. And they said they were opening their new studio in Burbank and asked me uh, if I would come over and, and head up production for them there. And I did, it was a great opportunity. And uh, I joined them and just as the studio was opening and that was a great time as well. I mean, it was a, you know, again, rare times. Those were, I remember my first, um, my first day at Nickelodeon they uh, they said, hey, here's some of the stuff that we have in production now, and here's a new show that we're putting into production, so you should watch this pilot. And the pilot was for SpongeBob, and it was Rip Pants. And um, it was, and I'd seen a lot, needless to say, seen a lot of animation up to that point. And it was the first time I can remember, I was sitting in the conference room alone watching this, the video for the pilot. And I was laughing out loud because it was so funny. And I knew this show is, this show is amazing. And they put that in production as I was starting. And again, a great, a great slate of shows going on there, which was Angry Beavers, Hey Arnold, Cat Dog, um, SpongeBob just starting up. It was, um, and, and then we had, uh, Fred had come over at that point there and Fred was doing a shorts program uh, for Nick Animation Studio as well. So I was there for two years at Nick Animation when I got a call from uh, Linda Siminski who called and said, hey, this thing at Warner Brothers isn't working out. Very, we're very different. Culturally, we're very different. We're not a fit for what they're doing. Everyone's unhappy, basically, um, under the Warner roof. Will you come open a studio for us? It was an incredible opportunity. Linda has been, you know, she was always um, such a great um, supporter of mine. And, uh, you know, the answer was easy, which was, yes, I would be happy to come over and open the studio, which is, which is what I did. And that was in... That was in 2000. So I spent two years at Nick. So I had a two-year contract with Nick. I spent two years at Nick. They called me about the middle of my second year and asked me to come over. So they, we just had to wait a few months. And then I started at early 2000 at uh, a cartoon when I opened the studio. And, um, and at that time, we had Powerpuff was actually... There was still an iteration of uh, power. No, there's still an iteration of Bravo going on at that time. Um, we ended up putting Powerpuff back in production and Dexter back in production. They were on a bit of they were a brief uh, hole. One of the first originals we we put in production at that, that time was Time Squad. Yes. And um, yeah, Dave Watson. And then the other was um, Gandhi was getting ready to start Samurai Jack. Mm -hmm. So. Um, but Gendy, I mean, the, the great story with me about Gendy and Gendy and I have remained friends, of course, over the years. And um, 
In fact, I was supposed to have lunch with him today. Um, oh, we were, yeah, he's, he's amazing. But as I was interviewing with the Cartoon Network people to come over and start the studio, even though Linda was like, yeah, come over and start the studio, I, I had to meet, I hadn't, I didn't really know Mike Lazo at the time. I didn't really know Betty at the time because I was working for Hanna-Barbera, which was Fred. So Fred was really the interface with all those folks. But I knew Linda because she was more of a day-to-day -day person. But, and of course I knew Gendy. But as I was getting ready to go over and start the studio, I had dinner with Gendy. And I remember at that dinner specifically, I said to Gendy, Look, Andy, what do you what do you want? Like, what are you what are you gonna what are you looking for in the studio? What would you want? Um, what would you want it to be like? And he said, he said, I just want there to be a good vibe. Hmm. And I never forgot those words. And and to me, ultimately, that meant a good culture and make sure that you know the culture was right for the creative. And that's exactly what they weren't getting on the Warner side, what they had on the Hanna-Barbera side. Because on the Hanna-Barbera side, you know, there was, again, so much history with Hanna-Barbera. Everybody, it was really, it was a great place to work because you really knew you were part of a historical place. Mm -hmm. you know, the Hanna-Barbera studio was a historical place. And everyone loved working there. There's, you know, I don't think there's anybody that passed through Hanna-Barbera stores that wasn't wasn't sort of in awe of this place they're working at because as you're saying cartoon was sort of your your childhood i can tell you hannah barbera was my childhood right so that was you know for me that was my childhood so to ultimately come into the studio where those cartoons were made and they were in that studio since the 60s so to come into that studio where those cartoons were made was you know nothing short of like spectacular to be there yeah. If you're into anime, manga, comic books, movie reviews, or just pop culture, Spoiler Force Podcast is the place for you. Not only do I talk about nerdy topics, I have conversations with a variety of guests, such as musicians, Comic-Con artists, cosplayers, other podcasters, and people from all over the world. Join me as I go on this journey to find ways to help others express themselves with their creativity. So everybody was very happy there, and it had a very specific culture. Warner Brothers was never that culture. So Warner Brothers, Warner, one of the first, the biggest differences about Warner Brothers was um, they were a writer-driven culture. So everything they did was heavily driven by writers. And um, at Hanna-Barbera, at the point at which Fred had come in and started the shorts program and uh, started the seven-minute cartoon format, everything was really outline driven and board driven. So that's was a huge difference because our folks going into the Warner side weren't used to the writer being king, honestly. I mean, that's the way, you know, that's the way it went at Warner's. Like the writers were the kings. Mm -hmm. And on that, for the cartoon side, it, it was the, it was the animators. It was the artists that were also the board artists that were the directors. That was like, they were, they were the creatives. And so the, the culture started with Hanna-Barbera and that was the culture that I was bringing back um, to the studio. The one thing they had, Julian, stop me if I'm going on too long. Absolutely. No, <laughs> I, I, I love, I love this type of stuff. I love being able to sit back and just listen to stories. So please continue. Okay. All right. The one thing that Hanna-Barbera had 
for a long time. And the studio was built in such a way that it was department driven. So there were different departments that all of the, every show went through those departments. So there was a character design department, right? So every show would use that same character design team to design their characters. That's how you ultimately ended up with um, what you would almost call a house style, right? So if you look at some of the Hanna-Barbera cartoons over the years, there's quite a few that you'd look at, you'd be able to look at now, even if you didn't know and say like, oh, that's a Hanna-Barbera cartoon because they all kind of started to have a similar house style. Disney did the same thing for a long time. They were in a similar way situation where they had departments, the character design department, the background design department, the character color department, the background color department. So everything went through these departments. And that was definitely one of the biggest things that we wanted to break and, and get away from. So in opening the studio, we were from the get-go, we were team-based. Um, we were, so these were teams dedicated to a specific show. And the, the director, so again, at Hanna-Barbera, at a time, you didn't really get to pick those character designers. There was a department head that would pick those character designers. So when we started on the originals, the uh, Cartoon, Cartoon Network originals, Gendy got to pick his own team. Craig got to pick his own team. They were These were people that were handpicked and selected by them to work on their show. And it was a big difference. It really, it made people feel more vested in the projects. Um, you felt like you were working directly for the creative. And it was, it was a, it was a, big deal it was a big change it was happening at, at Nick when I was there for sure like Nick was probably one of the first studios that did start to do that and then cartoon was absolutely we were doing that there was no question that we were going to go down that road so um so yeah I opened the studio in 2000 and um the irony of the story going back to what I said earlier is you know they're going through we went through when I left Cartoon last year, or spring of last year, it was a result of, so now with the Discovery merger and everything that's gone on, they've actually given the studio to Warner Animation. So we're, we came full circle. Yeah. I, I, I fended it off for 20 years and we came full circle and they ended up, they never could understand why there were to two animation studios. So why Warner's was like, why do we have two animation studios? Which is unfortunate because there were really good reasons to have two animation studios because we always remained very different, you know? And it's not to, it's not to say, I'm not, it's not a slight to Warner Animation. Warner Animation does a very specific thing and that's great. I mean, they, and most of their stuff is library based and um, it's, it's what they do. They have a specific business model. It's what they do. Cartoon was always creating originals because that was what our mandate was to create originals. So it was clear to me, and of course the cartoon side that yes, we need our own studio. We shouldn't be in your studio. And um, anyway, so now they've come full circle and now they're all under sort of the Warner animation banner for sure. One creative head um oversees both both groups and you know that's where they're at now it's interesting man uh thank you for sharing that uh there's a couple things i want to circle back to because i've i've heard this i've heard the same thing you've said a couple different times um 
from a couple different people, uh, especially during mm-hmm. if I talk to anybody that was a part of like that animation boom from the 90s, especially from the Disney side. You know, so it's it. a lot of people say, well, it happened, you know, with Little Mermaid is when the animation renaissance started. And then a couple other people like, no, you kind of started to see it around Oliver Twist, um, the rescuers. You, that's when you start to see it. But when I start to notice like, oh, shit, animation's different. Oh, shit, cartoons are different. Obviously, I'm way too young at that time to say cartoons are different. But I remember, like I said, it was just the cartoons that were coming off the TV were grabbing me more so than they were when you go to see a Disney movie or you see something on Nickelodeon or Disney channel, you know, it was different. It was like you were talking about every person from Gendy to Craig to Van to, to John to Danny Antonucci, everybody had their own team when it came to character design, layouts, pictures, paints, all of this stuff. So everything looked vastly diverse. Right. Um, And one thing that I've heard people echo was it was like this energy that was the youth. It was these young creators that were coming in and then they were just, they had something, they had panaz, they had this, I'm going to show you type of mentality. And they really elevated the game of animation in the early nineties. Um, did it feel like, and the only reason I'd have that long winded way of saying that is just so I could get to this one question. Did it feel like when you went into cartoon network, did it feel different? Did it feel did it feel alive? Like what was the energy or what was the vibe like when you came in there? Obviously you said that it built a culture, but what did it feel like to you? Opening the studio. You mean. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were, we were the new kids in town for sure. We were, we were always the younger, I mean, the average age of, of the, of the, the talent, the artistic teams, <laughs> truly, at some point, the average age of, of the artist was probably 25. I mean, we, so were, crazy. we were young, young, yeah, these were young, young kids. Um, Gendy turned 30 um, in the early years of the studio. You know, mm-hmm. it was, this was, yeah, these were the young you know, the young mavericks, I guess, at the, you know, for, for what it was. And, and having come from Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon was great as well, but Nickelodeon was much more, you know, they, they, they were creator friendly, but they were also, they had, they'd lost a little bit of their risk, their ability to take risks, because what happens is when you get to that number one spot and they were, they were number one, you have to that ha- you have to sustain that, right? Mm-hmm. So nobody wants to take any chances. It's like just keep doing what you're doing. Don't change it. Don't we? We don't want to do anything too too dramatically different. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. And cartoon always had the advantage of, uh, you know, it's like uh, when you're in third place, you can only go up. So just take, yeah. keep throwing stuff at the wall. Either it's going to work, or it's not going to work. But we. Yeah, I mean, the talent was young, they were energized, they, um, they were excited to be there. And, um, and you could feel it. I mean, you could feel it. It was and it was different even from Hanna-Barbera. Well, Hanna-Barbera was a great place. It was more of a historical place. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even a lot of that talent moved into cartoon the vibe was a very sort of different kind of vibe because this was their place now, right? So before they were in, they were in, uh, they were in Joe and Bill's house and now they were in their own house, right? So ultimately they, uh, this was their house. And this, in a lot of ways, this was Gendy and Craig's house because um, 
when we when we designed the studio even we went to them and said what do you want how do you want to how do you want to how do you want us to build this what do you what do you what's your perfect idea of what the studio should look like and the first thing they said their their first uh, their gut instinct was to say we all want offices we want our own private offices we want our and we knew like that was never going to work. So what we did was, because it would just be a bunch of walls and then you'd be in an office building, right? So I don't, I don't think you've ever been to the studio, but I have not, the no. studio, yeah. So it was a very specific design where it was an open floor plan, but we did build, we had cubicles, but the cubicles had doors and the cubicles were higher than a standard cubicle. So you couldn't walk up to the cubicle and look over the top. You, it was the, the wall was too high. And yet they weren't against the windows. It let the natural light in. It felt open. And yet the artists got to have their privacy as well. So, you know, those were the kinds of things that that we looked to the artistic teams to help us design for them. Like, you know, what's gonna, what is gonna give you the best work environment so you can do your best work and you know and that was that was absolutely what we did but yeah we were previously we were in somebody else's house and it was an amazing house and a historical house and now this was this was a new house this was this was the house that uh that cartoon network built and this was uh you know a very different place what was the craziest thing anybody asked for when you guys were building the studio does anything strike you or anything come back like oh we wanted a foosball table in every other room anything no like that? i mean you'd be surprised you know they were very um they were happy just to have a place that was their that was yeah. their own keep in mind they were coming from a, a place where they felt they were truly oppressed right so they were coming from this warner writer driven world where they they were kind of they felt like second class citizens honestly i mean they did not they just didn't didn't mesh with the with the environment. Here's a here's a funny story though. So when we were building this studio, we engaged an architect that was the same architect that Warner Animation engaged to open up a new building for them. So they were they were moving into a new building while we were opening our studio and designing our studio. So the architect um, cause, and we didn't have a lot of money at the beginning. We really didn't have much money. And the same architect was doing both places. And I can remember one time in a design meeting, they were kind of, they were laughing saying like, yeah, you are Cartoon Network compared to at Warner Animation. You're like the old Navy to the Versace. So everything on the Warner side was the, like the most expensive, like, and it was just crazy. It was such a waste of money. And, and we were very, I mean, if you saw the studio in the begin in the early days, we ended up evolving and making it a little, a little, uh, a little nicer. But in the early days, it was pretty raw. It was kind of like a New York, you know, sort of lofty kind of feel, you know, the open ceilings and the concrete floors. And it was really, um, it was just a cool space. There was nobody, nobody's asking for anything crazy, honestly. And, um, and things just kind of over the years evolved in terms of, of what we, uh, what we ended up adding to the studio over time. But generally speaking, yeah, there was no, no crazy requests. Damn, I was hoping for something crazy. I've heard some interesting <laughs> stories. Some of these stories have actually had to cut from, uh, cut from these videos. So they kind of die with me, but, uh, yeah, so I, I was hoping anyways, um, 
one thing I did want to uh, bring up. Um, now we'd have to leave Gendy and Craig off of this for just a second. Um, but how long were you there? You were there for 21 years. You said mm-hmm. that entire 21 year run. If you had to take Gendy and Craig off of this list, um, what shows stuck out to you as being like, Oh my God, this is, this is perfect. This is beautiful. This is amazing. Do a couple of them stick out to you as far? Oh, and I don't want I, mean, you, I don't want to ask you this question just so you can, you know, upset some other creator. So that's not what I'm getting at. But yeah. But I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite child, right? But ultimately, look, nobody can deny that Adventure Time is special. You yes. Know, it's a very special, special show. And, um, you know, I, I think we knew there was something unique about it when when we were first going into it, but had no idea that it would turn into what it turned into. But I mean, you had Adventure Time, you had um, Over the Garden Wall. I mean, you know, that was that was just shocking how that even came together. I mean, the, the way that show uh, kind of, Pat McHale really, he was making it up as he went along in a lot of ways and it, it worked, you know, he kind of, he would do these storyboard pitches where he would be saying like, yeah, and something's going to happen here. Yeah. I mean, he would, nothing would be exactly clear. And, but we knew like Pat had something special and he was doing something really different. And, and so we let him go and look and ultimately won an Emmy, which was incredible. Um, but yeah, you had over the garden wall, you had regular show, you had Steven Universe. I mean, Steven Universe, there's, you know, Rebecca, it's just amazing. I mean, she's mm-hmm. such a thoughtful, thoughtful creator. And, and everything she did was was done with intent. I mean, it, yes. there was it was very special. No very wasted movement whatsoever. Watching her and listening to her break down her show. Like I've never felt dumber in the best possible way. I don't mean that as a slight towards her, but listening to her articulate why she does something. I'm just like, there, this is so much more than a cartoon. This is so much more than animation. This is, I don't even have the words to put it into like what I'm trying to, 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 to describe, but it's just hearing her talk about all of this stuff. It's just like, master to craft man she's at the highest level of of animation storytelling and writing it was just phenomenal i I couldn't agree with you more i didn't mean to cut you off but yeah absolutely no absolutely no she you you yes absolutely i knew it from you know one of my my first lunches with her as we were getting ready to start the show and i and i there was something different about rebecca and her you know her intent and how she knew exactly what this was and you know that doesn't always happen you know i think mm-hmm. shows happen and they they evolve a lot and while steven evolved i still think rebecca always knew what that show was and what that show was going to be um so yeah there's a lot of them if you you know i love craig and gendy but there's a lot of them which you know i'm i'm, I'm honored to have been a part of now with all of these shows now some people do and then some people don't in the in the animation industry it's just like uh, my profession for cooking um i'm one of those unicorns they call us i love cooking outside of work most of the time when you're working 60 plus hours a week you don't want to cook when you go home but i absolutely love it you know so would you watch these cartoons as they were going on or you know would you watch them like us with the audience or something like that or would you just be like man it's just work i don't want to 
Yeah, that- no, we would have, I mean, we would see, you know, work print screenings of, mm-hmm. of all the shows, right? We'd get all the work prints. So we, we'd see it absolutely as the show progressed, we would see all the shows. Um, I wasn't watching them, you know, as a fan per se, but I was watching them from the studio's perspective. Um, and we'd see the storyboard pitches and we'd say, you know, we would, we would, we'd track the show from start to finish. So, so yeah, I mean, I guess if you're, if you're comparing your question to, if you're asking me, am I like a, an animation, you know, am I an animation person that just looks for every piece of animation I can absorb mm-hmm. at home? Mm, probably not as much. No. to tell you the truth i try to watch i try to keep you know keep with it but you know i'm not watching everything all the time you know there's just so much content out there it's it's hard to keep up with everything that's out there uh, absolutely. i just learned there was a new um a new just today there's a new animated series i guess it just premiered in september but there's a new animated series on amc plus um an animated original which you know that's different amc is into now getting into animation um, so it's just, yeah, there's so much, but, you know, adult animation is doing so well that I think all of these streamers, all of these, uh, content providers are, are looking now to animation the way they would look at, at, uh, live action. It's like, they're not looking at it as some sort of alien genre that's come in. They're looking at it. It's like, oh no, this could work. You know, this could, this could work as well as a live action show. So yeah, it's 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 interesting how that's evolved as well. Absolutely, and uh, we were talking Gendy earlier. Have you gotten the chance to watch Primal yet? I watched it all. Yeah, have you watched it? My God, have I! I was so, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it, spoilers might come up. I try not to spoil anything, but here's your warning: one, two, three. We're talking spoilers. Uh, the ending for that. I I, I had this talk because I had um, David Krentz, he's a storyboard artist, on for that one. And I also had Aaron Laplante, he's the voice of Spear, on uh, last couple weeks. And that show, it's not a cartoon. It's not. An, I don't know what it is. It's a movie. It, it feels like a movie that's been chopped up into epic. twenty parts. It is epic. Yeah, it, it's epic. just it's how he shot it, the, the the way they would pan in, the way they would pan out, how they would how they would treat their characters. The fact that there's ninety-eight percent of that show is probably no dialogue whatsoever. The entire series. It's just and then how yeah. it can have you on the edge of your seat the entire time, how you can feel for a caveman and a dinosaur. You don't know, they don't know how to talk to each other, but they figure it out down the road. They figure out how to communicate. And then you're figuring out as you go along, you're like, oh fuck, I'm starting to care for these two characters more than I think I should. And then it just it's like that whole scene in Shrek, man. You peel back those layers of an onion, and that's what you get for Shrek. You got an ogre. And that's what it felt like with the show. It was like every episode was adding another layer to these characters. And it it's I didn't know I didn't know what adult animation could be. You know, you see Invincible when when um uh COVID kicked off. That was crazy. And then you see Primal, you know, a couple months after that, and you're just like, holy shit, they're really putting everything into adult animation. I mean, when did you obviously adult swim's been around for a while, but there's been a concerted effort for over the last couple of years to really start putting more focus, more money, more attention, uh, more creators into that adult animation side. But when did you start to realize that as far as your job goes? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, Adult Swim, so we were involved early on, even in uh, Harvey Birdman, the first season of Harvey Birdman. We God, helped, I love that show. Um, we helped them get that uh, get that up and running. And then eventually they 
they took it to Atlanta because they could do it in Flash. They had a studio in Atlanta where they could do it all in Flash. So, but we were involved then in adult animation. But I, you know, it it was interesting because for a long time, it was like Simpsons, King of the Hill. Yes, you had Beavis and Butthead, right? Family Guy came along. Seth was with us. You know, Seth worked on uh, Cow and Chicken. And Cow and Chicken. Yeah, Cow and Chicken. But um, there was a handful of shows, right? And Fox had them and they had their Fox animation block. And, um, you know, then South Park came along and then, you know, eventually Archer and, and you saw more and more of them. But I think it's streaming now that's really, really bringing, bringing it all in, in terms of like, now we can do this. We're, we're absolutely in it. We're working on, I'm currently working on a, an HBO Max um, adult animated series uh, called Fired on Mars. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's, it's a great show. I mean, it's, it's, and it's, it's kind of a dark comedy, but sometimes more dark than comedy, but it's uh, Luke Wilson is the lead character. Okay. Um, and at the studio we did, like I said, we did some early Harvey Birdman. We did uh, close enough. We were doing, yes. you know, as we, you know, when I departed, they were in season two, maybe wrapping up season two. Um, so I think it's only recently that certainly I've seen it, this wave sort of come in in terms of adult animation, but I think it's just the beginning too. I hope so, man, because uh, it was, I didn't want to get too much onto this topic, but we've we've talked about it a little bit uh, with the whole merger and and everything like that. There's a lot of fans that were fired up asking questions on what could be done, what could not be done. But um, close enough in JG and regular show. I don't think the episodes that you've heard, you've actually gotten to hear the story, uh, but fans have heard this one. So I'll make this one quick. Uh, when I was deployed and I came home on shore duty, uh, I hit three deployments back to back to back. Uh, ranging from, I think it was like eight months, the first one, the last two were right at nine, almost 10 months. And at that time I had only one son um, and he was roughly five years old, maybe six years old, somewhere in that that neighborhood. Um, but for the first four years, you can kind of write off. I wasn't around. I was deployed the entire time. I was doing workups. I was on this side of the coast. He was on this side of the coast. Um, so one of the things we would do whenever I would come home and have time with him was we would watch cartoons together and Cartoon Network was, like I said, it was always been my channel. Um, so we would watch it and he had seen whether it was a commercial, you know, a superstitial, he saw something uh, with regular show, right? Mordecai and Rigby. And then I'm flipping the channels one day and he's like, daddy, 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 stop, 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 stop. So I was like, okay. So he's like, go back. So we go back and it's the regular show. And he's like, I was like, you like this? And he's like, yeah. He's like, let's watch this. So we start watching it. And, and I had given up on animation completely written it off i was like i was done with it i was just like i've got my shows that i grew up with it just i couldn't connect with a lot of the shows that were on and i'm not one of those guys that will shit on anything it's just like if i'm if i'm having fun no matter what it is i'm the worst fan and the best fan of the same i'm the worst and best fan if i like it i can suspend disbelief for 90 minutes 20 minutes 30 minutes whatever it is i i have fun with it regardless if it's good or bad so i'm sitting here watching it i'm laughing my ass off so this turned into weeks of us just bonding over this show i'm right off of deployment i get home he's happy and we would actually start greeting each other so he was in that time frame where he would start to understand like oh dad kind of gets home when the sun's starting to come on this side or whatever it is right he really couldn't tell time 
So there was a uh, first time he did it. We're walking up and we've been watching regular show for a couple of weeks at this point. And then he sees me and then he throws his hand up like Mordecai and Rigby would do. And he'd go, Whoa. And he would point at me as I was, I'm coming up the, up the driveway and shit. And then I, I knew what he was doing. So I wouldn't point at him. So as soon as I got in the house, I went and I pointed to him and I threw my hand up and then he was fucking just running in circles going, Whoa. <laughs> so that show is so fucking special. I was so bummed when they, when they canceled close enough because it felt like I was getting regular show part two, but if regular show part two was grown up in a sense, it's yeah. JG is, is I put him in the same, same vein as Craig and Gendy. I mean, he's a generational oh. talent, right? Oh. It's, you know, it's, it's just, it's, I hope there is a landing spot where JG's working on something new uh, oh. because he's one of those voices that we absolutely need in times like these, I think. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I'm um, sure you'll I'm sure you'll see JG again. I don't know, you know, what's going on over there at the moment, but I'm sure we'll see more from JG Quintel for sure. He's yeah, and he is an amazing he was amazing to work with. Just a pleasure, a pleasure to work with. Always, you know, there are, he's he was one of those creators that understood the process like that like there's two sides to this process, right? There's the there's the creative and then there's the production that you have to sort of keep the keep these trains moving. And JG was always good about that, always understood like, oh, okay, yeah, we gotta we gotta keep this going. And and he knew when to when to let go and when to, you know, he picked his battles and and he he did it right. He was he was a pleasure. That's cool, man. Um, what's your favorite JG Quintel story? You got one? Maybe a lunchtime you know it doesn't have to be anything incendiary but you got anything that that whenever you think of jg comes to mind right off the bat yeah i mean i think early on when he was starting his show i mean it was it's funny because we had we had gone to lunch with um we had gone to lunch with the the overseas studio that was going to be animating the show and um and a question came up which was like, well, you know, what are you like? It was something about sort of like, what do you want to, what do you want to do next or something like that? And JG basically, he was so confident that he was, he, he basically said like, oh, he's kind of, he's kind of, he's kind of learned, you know, he's, he's kind of learned everything he needs to learn, you know, about, and, and that is kind of JG. I mean, JG is like, he wants to master and, mm. and that would even go to life you know he would want to master life like he would be like oh yeah i can get that i can learn that i know that and and that was first of all i always thought it was funny because i mean at that time he was he literally must have been 26 or 27 yeah. it's like you can't possibly you know he didn't have any kids i think maybe he just got married i don't know but it was like it's like jg there's so much of life ahead of you but he felt like oh no he'd really you know he really lived lived a life at that point and it was just <laughs> and he's such a sweetheart of a guy that you didn't yeah. you know you didn't come off as arrogant it just came off as like okay well you've got a long ways to go you're gonna and then what, what's also funny is when he had turned 30 while he was at the studio he was given um i forget the organization but he was given a lifetime achievement award at yeah. 30 which is hysterical it's like 
And I presented the award to him. They asked me to present the award to him. <laughs> and I was like, okay, JG, well, here's your lifetime achievement award at 30 years old. You, you, you've achieved this for your life. And, and it's like, it goes right with JG and his, you know, his world. It's like, yes, I, I have my lifetime achievement award. I don't know if Gendy's ever received a lifetime achievement award. <laughs> God, can you imagine being the youngest recipient of a lifetime achievement award? Yeah, I mean, Robert De Niro just got one. one of them. <laughs> yeah. God, that's fucking great, man. Um, so we've kind of hit that forty-five minute mark. I didn't want to keep you, you know, super long. So I figure uh, we could we could start to you know kind of wind down here. We'll ask some fans questions, mm-hmm. uh, and then we'll end it here, man. Um, but I, I want to revisit that first question I asked you when we first started, man. What did Cartoon Network? You know, what is it? What are the thoughts that come to mind whenever you hear the word Cartoon Network or the the sentence, the phrase Cartoon Network statement? Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you said you did about twenty one years with Cartoon Network. You made a lot of friends. You guys made a lot of hit TV shows. Um, you guys made millions of kids happy and i'm sure hundreds of thousands of kids upset because you can never make everybody happy um but when you sit back and you look at that time with cartoon network is there a moment is there a a show a season uh, a series that kind of when you sit back you're like fuck man we did it i, I did I, I helped bring this alive was there a crowning achievement i guess is what i'm getting at from those 21 years that you look back fondly on in terms of a show, I mean, I would say, you know, at the time, I felt like the first show where I really felt like, wow, this is this is totally different, and this is going to set um, the bar, the standard. Yeah, that's kind of going to set a standard now, and that was Samurai Jack for sure. Yeah, like what Andy had done with Samurai Jack, we knew looking at it at that time it was like, wow, this is. It reminded me of when Bruce Timm's Batman came out, right? It was like you looked at Bruce Timm's Batman and you knew like, wow, this is like nothing else and it's beautiful. And I felt the same way about uh, about Samurai Jack. I knew that like, wow, this is this is totally and completely different. So I think that is the one time in the early days. And then... You know, I guess I've, you know, it happened again with, I think, Adventure Time ultimately, right? So Adventure Time then then became the show that everyone else in the industry was saying, where's our Adventure Time? Where's our Adventure Time? You know, like that was the, that became the show that, that did set the bar later on in the studio's uh, years. But the first one for the studio, without a doubt, was, was Samurai Jack for sure. Yeah. That's a that's another like I said I've I've never watched anything Gendy's ever done and been like meh you know it's always been like holy shit he's he's doing something different and it's crazy to think like you watch everything it's the same thing with a lot of these creators like Craig himself you know if you if you take Gendy and Craig you got Dexter then you got Samurai then you got Symbionic Titan you know you've got Primal you got the Hotel Transylvania movies and you got Craig you got Powerpuff Girls you've got Foster's Home you've got Wander you've got Kid Cosmic. And what are all those similarities for those? Like, obviously, it's Gandhi and Craig, right? But what is different? Everything is different about those shows. What is the same? Nothing is the same about those shows. Each time they do something, they're doing something that's pushing the boundaries. They probably 
I don't want to say they don't feel comfortable because I don't want to put words in their mouths, but they're probably pushing uh, the limits of what they think they can accomplish with something new. And I, I think it, I think it's an, I think it's interesting. I think it's fantastic. And I think it's one of those things where if, if you go and you look at somebody's career and you be like, holy shit, they made an entire career. And it wasn't off of that one Hanna-Barbera style. It wasn't off of that, that Disney style, that Nickelodeon style, everything was different. And I just think that's something you got to hang your hat on at the end of the day. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, they're constantly pushing, right? They're constantly pushing. Gendy topped himself, right? He topped yes. himself with his second uh, season, his second series of Samurai Jack. The second season of Primal got better than the first. I mean, who could have, you know, who would have thought? I mean, it's just he keeps pushing and pushing and, you know, and, and I think Craig's the same. You know, they're always looking for, you know, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Uh, I, th I just think it's beautiful. I mean, when you, I don't want to say they don't have any fear, but when you've, when you've got it dialed in and you, like I said, you're at the height of your craft, you're, you're the master of your destiny. It's just, it's something special. And I'm so glad uh, that I grew up in the time that I grew up and I got to experience these cartoons firsthand. Uh, I got to see, you know, your name up in the credits. I can see Gandhi's name in the credits. I got to see people like Randy, uh, Robert Alvarez and Randy Myers and Linda Semensky and Betty Cohen and Fred Seibert and Danny Antonucci. It's just crazy to think that, you know, 30 years ago when this network started, it could have been a flash in the pan, man. You guys could last it a year. You guys could last it two years. You guys could last 60 years. You guys could last 100 years. Who knows how long Cartoon Network's going to go? But like I said, I'm glad I got the last 30 years with Cartoon Network that I've gotten. Um, and as we rotate into the fans' question, I've had a lot of fun with this chat, man. I really appreciated the stories that you were sharing. So anytime you want to come back on, I know we can't do your entire career in just one, you know, one simple sitting because – Come on, Brian, you, you've seen your resume. You got 21 years, some of the greatest shows ever created. Um, so I'd love to have you back on down the road if you ever want to come back on, man. So I'd like to throw that out there. Uh, and the second thing is those two questions that I gave you. So you got a Mount Rushmore. So you got four people plus an honorable mention, right? So who's your four on your Mount Rushmore as far as animators go? And then who would be your honorable mention? So, okay. So animators... <clears throat> I mean, look, you know, again, my childhood would be Hannah and Barbera. Do they count as two or yeah. do they count as one? <laughs> I mean, hey, man, this is your list. You tell me. Yeah, I mean, you know, Hannah Barbera would absolutely have to be on on the Mount Rushmore. I would say, uh, you know, Gendy. I mean, Gendy is Gendy. There's nothing, nothing quite like Gendy. And, you know, if you look at, you know, in terms of animators, like, you know, beautiful animation animators you know the glenn Keens of the world like, yes you know if you look at his work he would have to be you know on a list like that oh, yeah. um, but there you know there are so many i mean um we'll just leave it at that for now <laughs> <laughs> all right and then you had uh two books man two books do you think anybody that's in the animation field or anybody that's a fan of animation should have on their shelves what two books you recommended yeah i mean illusion of life certainly the disney book is is a is an amazing book mm -hmm. uh, there's also a seamus cole hain book yes. um called Ta talking animals and other people mm -hmm. um which i would totally recommend uh, people check out there's so many art books that you know are worth checking out for sure oh yeah um but yeah i'd say those two are you know are the ones that are working. there's also a pixar book um the creativity book which i can't think of the full title of which is an incredible book to read as well and yeah. we were setting up the studio we 
we i was always fascinated by how pixar had their layout for their studio and how they encouraged people to move around and run into other people by chance and and we 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 did a little bit of that at cartoon network studios where we we tried to set up the studio in such a way that you would maybe accidentally run into someone that you wouldn't run into otherwise so what ends up happening you know when people come in and they go to work and you know i think it's probably any profession they'll go to their office they'll go to their cubicle whatever they're doing and they just sit they don't get up maybe they'll get up and go to the kitchen that's right there on their floor and get a cup of coffee or whatever but what we did at cartoon network is on every floor we had i don't know 10 11 floors um we would have a different attraction. So if you wanted cereal, we had a cereal bar, but you had to go to the second floor of the main building to get that cereal. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't get it on your floor. So if you wanted it, you'd have to go over there and you'd probably run into somebody that you wouldn't run into otherwise. And it created this kind of ability for people to have conversations that they wouldn't have had otherwise, because really we're just creatures of habit that go and, you know, again, sort of stay in our own world and we don't ever get out. So we did that and every floor had something different, which made people move out from their own areas and, and go to other places. Anyway, that I just hearkened back to, you know, what I had learned about sort of the Pixar setup and how they were encouraging that as well. That's extremely smart too. And I don't think anybody would really think about that until you have your own studio and you're like, fuck, man, what do we need here? What do we need here? That's so smart. What was your favorite floor? What was your favorite attraction? You got one? Um, well, we had, I mean, one of the, I'd say one of the most popular ones certainly was we had a pancake machine. <laughs> uh, it was, yeah, it was like literally what's, what was crazy about it. It was like, it almost looked like a Xerox machine. It was uh-huh. literally a machine. You might've seen them They're They're in some hotels now at the time. It was like the, the newest thing, but they're in some hotels and some airport lounge or whatever, but it literally comes out almost like a printed, you know, it's a pancake that flops into your plate and it looks like the size of a printer and people love the pancake machine. I can tell you that. So, but we had, I mean, we had, so we had icy machine. We had, we had, of course, the, the crazy uh, cold Coca-Cola machine that had, you know, a hundred different flavors. And um, we had a kombucha bar and a coffee, mm-hmm. coffee bar. And we had, we had all kinds of stuff. And then we would do barbecues on Friday. I mean, this is a different conversation, Julian, but there's a lot of stuff that uh, that went into the studio and the culture, you know, going back to the culture. I mean, all of that was contributing to that culture. And on the surface, it looks like, oh, wow, these are great perks. But there was there was also the motivation behind it was really to keep people socializing and moving around and, and, uh, and keep creativity, you know, positive flowing positive that's a beautiful way to do it man and i I really think that was something cool i don't think anybody's ever really talked about uh how you guys had different attractions obviously uh van partible he was on johnny bravo uh creator he was on he was like almost every friday we were were having a barbecue almost once or twice a week we're having a party everywhere and he was like you would just walk to other floors and other rooms and you would see what everybody else was doing and then you would instantly get inspired you'd go back down to your floor and then you'd get right back to it so you guys were doing yeah you guys were doing (laughs) you guys were really doing it man and uh Right before we go into the fans questions, this one's fun because this is how I actually ended up reaching out to you because your name was dropped so many times. So during the animation recommendation, 
that's when you folks get to say, hey, you should, if you like to have a me on, you should reach out to such and such. So Linda actually dropped your name and Betty dropped your name as well. Uh, so for the animation recommendation, who do you think would have a great time on the show that we should reach out to? Who would have a great time on the show or who should yeah. reach out to? Both, both. Because <laughs> the person that, would, that you should reach out to would be the ever elusive Mike Lazo. Yes. Now, whether uh, or not you would get him is another is another story. But uh, but that he is the man. I mean, he he really he was so instrumental in the network. I mean, yes. I cannot cannot say enough for what he did. You know, I don't know if you know his story at all, but he was he worked. He started in the mailroom at Turner, yeah. and at some point, he ended up. They they basically said to him like. You know, see those, you know, 200 boxes over there. They're full of videotapes. Go through them and, and we want to make a cartoon. We want to make a cartoon network. Tell us what to program. And literally that's that's what happened. And he, this this guy, I mean, Mike is a genius. I mean, truly yeah. he's a genius. Um, so he would be the guy that, that you should definitely pursue. Mm -hmm. um, you spoke to Robert Alvarez, which I'm so glad that you did because Robert... Um, Robert is truly a legend. I mean, yes. he, he worked he worked at Cartoon longer than he'd worked at any studio in his whole career. And he was such a tremendous asset for us. I mean, he's still there. I mean, he was such a tremendous asset for us. And um, like, I mean, you know his story. I mean, he's yes. incredible. I'm just, I'm just so glad you... I don't know who told you to talk to him, but that was that was the right call. I mean, he absolutely would be uh, would be the guy that you should talk to. And then, of course, I don't think you've had Gendy, right? I mean, you should. No, I have not. Gendy, Gendy's definitely. Uh, we we talk. Gendy comes up at least every episode, man. So my Mount Rushmore is Gendy. If I could put Gendy on all four spots, it'd be Gendy on all four spots. He is, yeah. in my opinion, what 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 some people, what Chuck Jones and Tex Avery and and Will uh, and Bill and Joe. What they are to people like Gendy and Craig and John Dilworth and all those guys, Gendy is to me. So, I mean, he's like my Chuck Jones. He's my Tex Saver. He's my Walt Disney. Whatever you want to put him in. He's in a league of his own, in my opinion. Greatest of all time. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Gendy, Gendy's definitely a guy that hopefully one day we'll have him on. Have you had Dilworth? No, I actually reached out to him. Uh, we're, the last two Halloweens, I've released Courage the Cowardly Dog episodes. Lat well, no, including this, this is will be the second Halloween that we've actually had the uh, podcast going. So this is our second year here. Um, actually, next week is our two year anniversary for this one. Oh, um, so thank you, when, ladies and gentlemen, when you're watching this two weeks ago, it was uh, it was the anniversary. Um, but uh, last year we had David Stephen Cohen, which was the head writer for um, Courage. And then this year we're having Jody Gray. He was on a couple weeks ago the composer for Courage the Cowardly Dog. So I reached out to John, but John's been busy doing um, a cartoon that he's working on right now. Uh, so I don't want to wait until next Halloween to have him on. But yeah, uh, he'll be on here one day, I hope. He's a, um, he is a lot of fun. He is a yeah. lot of fun. So yeah. he would be, I know you would enjoy having him as well. Absolutely. So he's definitely on that list, man. Um, and, oh shit, there was a point I was going to hit. I can't remember what it was. But nonetheless, man, let's rotate in the fans' questions. I'm sure that that thought that i had will pop back up 
Um, and ladies and gentlemen, there was a lot, almost like the Betty Cohen one. I think Betty had like 247 questions and people were still writing in questions long after I've already had her on. Um, just, just on the Adventure Time subreddit where I posted this, there was 117 <laughs> questions. So we're not obviously going to ask, uh, you know, nowhere near the amount of questions you've written, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but thank you for writing in. Um, Necro Vecro wants to know, uh, what was the hardest decision you've ever had to make at Cartoon Network Studios? Does one or two stick out to you? Hmm. Hardest decision. Oh, that's a good question. Um, if you want, we can come back to that one so you can think about yeah, it. Yeah, let me think bit. about it. I mean, uh, yeah. You know, nothing immediately comes to mind as a hard decision. But yeah, let me think about it. What's the next one? All right. Uh, <laughs> this one's fun. Ethan WC. He said, best pitches that went nowhere, please spill the beans, or a project they passed on that made it big elsewhere. Uh, mm -hmm. So was, was there a best pitch that went nowhere? Or a good pitch that went nowhere? I mean, I can tell you a funny story about a pitch that, that, yeah, that actually was a good pitch that went nowhere. And there was a reason it didn't uh, go anywhere, which was we had a pitch that was, um, it was called Circus Peanut. Mm -hmm. And it basically was uh, characters in a circus. There was a peanut character, you know, those little uh, candy, soft, marshmallowy peanut things. The worst there. candy in the world. Yeah, yes. I know exactly. Those are yeah. called circus peanuts. Circus right? peanuts. That's yeah. the circus peanut. So he was the character. He was the main <laughs> character. Then there was a ringmaster. And then there was an elephant character. And I forget the other character. But the characters, what was interesting about this, um, this was just as, remember I told you how Everybody was saying, where's our adventure time? Where's our adventure time? Well, at this time, SpongeBob, there was there was no adventure time at this time. SpongeBob was the show, right? Yeah. So everybody was looking, you know, for what, you know, what's the next SpongeBob? So a cartoon, we had this pitch, the Circus Peanut pitch. And we took it to a focus group. And the kids loved the pitch. They were like out of their minds. They were like, this is amazing. We love it. We love it. We love it. And um, and when we started talking to them about it, what we realized was what they loved about it was that it was so much like SpongeBob. Mm -hmm. And it was true. The Circus Peanut character was kind of the SpongeBob character. The Ringmaster was kind of Mr. Krabs. Like it was the characters were, Squidward was the elephant. Like they were very similar to the SpongeBob characters. And... But when we asked the kids, when we said to them, like, well, would you, if this was on, when SpongeBob was on, would you watch this or would you watch SpongeBob? And unanimously, they were like, no, we watch SpongeBob. <laughs> so we knew, like, yeah, wow, like, this is great. And it was Linda, I think, at the time that was like, yeah, we can't do this show because it, they only like it because it's like SpongeBob. It's not, you know, it's not unique enough that they're going to watch it instead of SpongeBob. But, you know, that that also goes to sort of, you know, the smart decision making that Linda and Mike would would make, which would be to look at it and go like, yeah, this is like another executive might have said like, oh, my God, they love it. And it's just like SpongeBob. Let's do it. And it 
likely would have failed because it was too similar to SpongeBob. So that's definitely one of the ones that was like, oh, wow, that's, it was a learning moment, I think, for everyone at that point. Absolutely. Was there, then you had another question about. Uh, Was uh, the other one, he said, if you didn't have one of those, was there a project that that you guys had passed on that might've made uh, it big somewhere else? You know, it's the reverse of that, which was that Nickelodeon passed on Adventure Time. Yeah, Fred said that, oh, which was baffling. Yeah. So we had the reverse of that. Where they passed on it, we got it, and, and the rest is history. So. How pissed do you think they were? I don't know. I mean, I don't think... Here's the 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 interesting thing. is It never would have been the show it was if it stayed in Nickelodeon. So uh-huh. because they would have never let it be what it is, they would have put the Nickelodeon... Kibosh you know, on, it. on it they would have put the Nickelodeon they would have made it a very specific kids show which is what mm-hmm. Nickelodeon does you know the, the shows are very much specifically kids they go through a lot of focus groups a lot of testing so it would have never been Adventure Time as you know it um, I mean I'm sure they're not happy that we had it mm-hmm. but I don't know that they would have ever wanted it they didn't want it then and they would have never made it what it was in my opinion yeah um this one was uh this one was a really good one uh frost the lost one wants to know what was the hardest show to watch end Mm. Mm. um yeah i mean that is a good question i i would say you know i would have said at one point maybe samurai jack but it ended up coming back um boy did it too fuck yes, it. that did. final yeah. season jesus christ was so great perfect but you know we were really fortunate in that at that time a lot of our series like went to 100 episodes you know yeah. and when you have that many episodes you know it's it's run a good course so we didn't have a lot of shows that ended oh here's what i would say um whatever happened to robot jones i don't know if you know that show but that was a show that unfortunately didn't get past the first season. And, you know, I love the style of it. The humor was great. And yeah, I never made it past the first season. So that would be the one I would say. So there was two shows and I'm glad you brought up that one because it was that one in time squad. We, you talked time squad earlier and I had Dave Watson on a few, a uh, few months back or maybe earlier in the year, this year is starting to blend in uh, kind of like the last two years have. And I, I told him, I was like, I remember skipping school and staying home. And then it was roughly around when, you know, Time Squad had started. There was a few episodes out there playing. And I was like, holy shit, man. I'm glad I didn't give a hell. I didn't give any. I didn't give a shit about school at all. I was like, man, I don't care. This cartoon is great. And I was like, I learned history because of what you guys were teaching. Whether it was revisionist history or not, whether it was real or not, I was learning history. So I tried to play that off with my mom. And she's like, no, you need to go to school. I was like, shit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that 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 show, like those two shows in particular, I think had the water kind of cut off a little too early. I would love to see him go back a little bit longer with those ones. Um, where are we at here? Uh, Geppetto Tron wanted to know. Uh, he said, I'd be interested to hear about his thoughts on Adventure Time's rise to popularity. Was it expected or a complete surprise? No, definitely a surprise. Yeah, we knew there was something unique about Adventure Time for sure, but I don't think anybody, anybody had any idea that it would blow up the way it did. No, I mean, you know, I think in making it, I think it was like, well, this is a really cool show. We all think it's cool, but 
we had no idea that that yeah. would turn into what it turned into from the, from the get-go I mean, there's no we like i said you know there's something there but you just you know you can never predict that right it's always interesting to see what people latch on to and what people yeah. really take and it's, sometimes it's surprising um there's a second part here uh he said, I'd also like to hear what his favorite era of cartoons was. Do you have a favorite era? Obviously, you talked Hanna-Barbera earlier growing up. That was your childhood right there. But do you have a yeah, favorite era? Yeah, and that's right. That's person. That's more personally my my era would have, would have been my childhood would have been Hanna-Barbera for sure. Um, I, you know, I worked on a ton of 80s stuff. Mm -hmm. um, not the best era of cartoons. No, not at all. <laughs> And yet they are nostalgic to, Absolutely. to folks now, which I, I find humorous because it's like, really, that stuff was awful. So how could you find it nostalgic? But it is nostalgic to to people who grew up on that. Um, I think really the the renaissance for animation started like late 90s, you know, sort of that boom started again mm -hmm. and into the early 2000s for sure. Beautiful. And uh Oh, this one, not a good one. Uh, Jack Docks, I think, is his name. So I apologize if I pronounced it incorrectly. So favorite pilot that you never got to pull to series? Was there one that stuck out to you, Brian? Yeah, absolutely. The pilot, I mean, there were multiple pilots that, you know, I'm sorry we didn't ultimately produce, but certainly Elizabeth Ito's Welcome to My Life was a beautiful pilot. Elizabeth ended up, she was a director on Adventure Time. She ended up leaving the studio after the pilot, after Adventure Time and did City of Ghosts for Netflix. I'm sure some of the folks out there have seen it and, and did a beautiful job on City of Ghosts. But if you were able to see the pilot for Welcome to My Life, you can see the influence of Welcome to My Life on City of Ghosts. And um, yeah, regret that we weren't able to work together with her on that. So what was that what was that factor that you really wanted uh, or what what made her stand out so much to you compared to the other ones? Like, why was this one just sticking there? Yeah, it was it's there was it was a totally different, um, different style. You know, mm -hmm. she, we've done it in a very unique way. We worked with a French studio on it. So the animation was very unique. But also it was the first time we'd done anything that was came close to almost like documentary and sort of work. So she recorded her family and her family did the voices. Mm -hmm. And um, it was extremely unique and different. And again, she pulled a lot of that into City of Ghosts. And there was, we had never done anything like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm so, first of all, I'm a fan of documentaries anyway, but yeah. you know, it wasn't pure documentary, but you, you could tell by the way she, she was working and looked at it, that this is what she did. She, she used real locations in it. She was very much um, focused on sort of highlighting the city and the town. And she's, she's from LA and that's, you know, that was all part of it. So yeah, very, really special kind of pilot. Absolutely. And you said she was doing that when she was working on Adventure Time or she had already finished Adventure Time? No, she was still working on Adventure Time. Yeah. While she was doing it. So no, was she, there? Any... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just when she wrapped Adventure Time, she ended up leaving the studio. 
Now, when when somebody is a director on a, on a show, maybe I don't know if you'd be able to answer this, but you might be able to. But when somebody's a director on a show, or somebody has got a huge role like a director, or like a timing director, or anything like that, with these shows and these series that are going on, I um, mean, with something as big as Adventure Time, um, I, I got to imagine they're being pulled per- pretty thin. Uh, do you did, did you guys ever tend to not frown upon in a bad way, but like say, hey, you know, like let's focus on this, and then you guys can focus on your pilot, or once they were completely off the clock they could kind of really do and pitch whatever they wanted to. Yeah. I mean, that was the hard part when we, cause oftentimes we would, we would be working on new pilots with people that were on staff mm-hmm. and it, it was difficult for them because they had their full-time job and then they were trying to do the pilot as well. And that frequently happened. I mean, it's interesting because if I went through all the pilots we had done, I mean, 70%, maybe more, were of people internal to the studio. Fewer came from people outside because the talent was there and we had amazing talent. You know, next time we talk, we can talk about sort of, you know, what shows begat what talent for what other shows, because that's also the way things started to turn historically in the studio is some shows and new talent was coming in and then that talent would end up creating their own series and then talent from that would come and create their own series. So one would begat another, begat another. And that's, that was a staple of the way we kind of evolved as a studio. Beautiful. And then, uh, like you said, Elizabeth Ito was the one that got away. Maybe down the road, you can work with her again or pull her back in. I'm, I got to imagine oh. somebody like that uh, has got ideas just firing off on all cylinders. Um, I know she does. She's off working. Yeah, I know she's working on new stuff now. So good for her beautiful man i I like to hear it absolutely um oh man some of these names i apologize uh bio mega bear i'm just going to call you the other name that they had by it um i wanted to know how different was pitching approving of a show in the 90s uh to 2007 versus today uh what is that process now this is a i think this is a question that was kind of in response to the Betty Cohen episode, I believe. Um, I think we might have talked about it. I can't remember if it was on air or off air when I had Fred on a couple weeks ago. Um, but I think Betty said that there there was like a three-card system almost or a three-color system, green, yellow, and red. Green meaning you don't really need anything for this the show. We could probably green light it right now. Yellow was like, I need some, you need a little bit of work. And then red was like, holy shit, throw it out type of thing. Um I think Fred came on and said that wasn't a hundred percent how it was kind of, there was some things in there. Um, but what was that process like whenever somebody would pitch a show to you, how would you guys kind of uh, work with each other and talk with each other after that pitch was done? Yeah, I mean, at the studio we had, you know, you had Mike and Linda, we had Mike and Linda for the early years of Cartoon Network Studios, maybe almost the first half of, uh, of my time there. And then, um, and Mike and Linda, you know, again, it, it was interesting because when Mike and, so this is, this would be post Fred, mm-hmm. right? So this would be post Fred, but really more studio because by the time the studio was up, Fred was gone. Um, and really Mike and Linda, same situation they could kind of green light what they wanted to green i would say look i'd say the biggest difference between those days and even the days up to the days that i that i my last days we were pretty 
free to make those decisions on our own. In latter years at Khartoum, you would take into consideration the international groups because global became so important that things worked everywhere in the world. So you would definitely pull the international groups. So international networks that were running Cartoon Network, um, you would definitely want their feedback on stuff. But for the most part, we had real freedoms in terms of what we could greenlight. Um, now i think it's it's tougher now i think there you have to get buy-in from maybe different people that are going to be um, putting up money for the show so for example in the warner world i know part of their process on some shows is they have to be able to say like consumer products can you make money on this show you know and then they'll and if consumer products says like yeah we can we know we can sell that then that's one one thing that they you know they take into consideration and then they'll see you know international can you sell the show okay so they have to sort of go through all those stages and get all of the players to buy in before they can actually green light anything so it's a it's definitely a tougher process um now than in the days of of you know cartoon and it was a unique time i mean i, I don't think those days are coming back but where you had sort of the ability to green light whatever you liked. <laughs> and I really hope it would because I don't <clears throat> I don't I don't know much about ratings. I don't know much about the bottom line for what you guys were really chasing back then. And by you guys, I mean as a, a network studio, you guys are trying to grow, you guys are trying to put out great cartoons. But I gotta imagine, man, it was probably probably a pretty good financial situation for cartoon network at that time during that late nineties boom with all of those cartoons. I got to imagine you guys were making hand over fist when it came to the money portion. Well, the interesting part actually about the money is the money didn't come from the kid's side. The money came from the adult swim side. So when really? Lazo started the adult swim block, yeah, because adult swim advertising is, is they pay a much higher price point. So the small block of adult swim at night carried the entire network. That's fucking insane. I didn't know that. Obviously, yeah. like, you know, you hear now, maybe you might be able to answer this because I've heard this on so many different occasions. And a lot of those, a lot of those deep uh, cartoons were made just to sell toys. Um, you yeah. know, He-Man, Thundercats. Uh, there's a couple in there. Um, I mean, you can fucking see them behind me. The Ninja Turtles, probably the, the biggest, the biggest let's just make something so we sell these toys of all time, the Ninja Turtles. And then it's a billion dollar franchise 35 years yeah. later. Um, yeah. How how true is that though? How true is that if if your cartoon doesn't sell? Because there was actually a question. I can't find it. I've been I've been trying to scroll back and look for it. Um, but how true is that? Where if a show was canceled, it was strictly on it just didn't sell enough toys. Because you hear that so many times. I just don't know how true that really is. No, it's it's never based on does it sell well? Not for us. I mean, it's not okay. based on does it sell toys? It was because none of our shows were based on toys so yeah. you know if you've got toys that was just like bonus you know so the biggest bonus in that world really was powerpuff girls I and mean, powerpuff yes. girls probably made a billion dollars and powerpuff girls made a lot of money on toys and on all kinds of product all kinds of merchandise but it's not something that the show lived or died on in any way shape or form now again i mean if, if you look at the warner shows where you have to have buy-in from that group consumer products you know, if they're not selling toys, you might not get a pickup because, but that's part of the business model. 
that was never part of the business model at Cartoon. So at, at Cartoon, you hoped that you'd be able to sell toys. Yeah. But you never looked at anything and said, like, will that sell toys? There's one show we did going into it where we said, this is a toy show. We're going to get a toy partner and this is a toy show. You know what show that is? Is what era? I might be able to guess it. We did more seasons, more iterations of this show than any other show at Cartoon Network. It was in production almost the entire time the studio was open. Fuck. <laughs> so quiz for you, Julian. I want to say Ed and Eddie, but that wasn't at the start. I mean, Space Coast, Coast to Coast. Was it Ed and Eddie wasn't a studio show. That's a network Yeah, that was an AK, yeah, AK owned. So I don't think that one counts, but no, I mean you got me you got me stumped here. Ben 10. Fucking Ben, really? Ben 10 was the longest running, continuously running show in the studio. And it was made because we knew it could sell toys. And that was why we ended up making that show. Wow, that's insane. I don't think I, I, I you could have gave me like 10 or 15 guesses and I wouldn't have guessed Ben 10. Fuck, man, that's wild. And it sold uh, a lot of toys. Ben 10 was a great consumer products uh, hit. Yeah, I remember watching that one growing up. I, I really had a fun. My younger brother liked that one a lot more than I did because he's a couple years younger than me. So that one kind of hit like right at his like peak of cartoon watching or consuming was going on. Um, so he really enjoyed that one. And my, my oldest son has actually gotten into that one as well. Like, I don't know what it is. But do you have kids? I won't ask you like anything crazy, but do you have kids? Yeah. Uh, how old, if you don't mind me asking? Young, um, older? They're not, they're not kids. They're, they're adults. <laughs> they're adults. Okay. So... But maybe, they grew up in the era of Cartoon Network. Maybe you, maybe you noticed this because, like I said, I got a thirteen-year-old, I got a one-year-old, and then we have a little girl on the way in April of next year. So uh, we got a full house here, man. But did you ever see him go in and out on shows? Like maybe they started watching something when they were like seven, eight, and then they kind of left it because they got older, and but they came back to it because that's what yeah. my son's doing now. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's been revisiting Ben 10. Ben 10 is one of those ones that he'll, he won't watch for like six, eight months, almost a year, and then he'll come back to it. Um, so it's always interesting to, to see like what he latches onto and what he comes back with. Um, oh, this one's a good one. Uh, Jack W212 wants to know, uh, curious on what his top five favorite Cartoon Network cartoons are. So you did there for 21 years, man. You can't really pick your favorite kid, even though we all have our favorite kids, depending on what they do and what they don't do. Um, but <laughs> what would be some of your go-to Cartoon Network shows? Yeah, I mean, look, the ones that were originals to the studio. So let's take off Powerpuff and Dexter. Those were not originals to the studio. But when you go to the originals to the studio, you know, you've got regular show, Adventure Time, Samurai Jack, Steven Universe. Um, you know, I think We Bear Bears is a great show. I mean, love that show so much. It's so fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Daniel was, again, he's another very thoughtful creator in how he, how he executed that show. One of, like, one of my favorite anythings that I've seen was from, and it's, I love when I can pick out something that I've experienced in my everyday life in a cartoon and the episode, and I don't ever do this because it's so hard to remember what you did or what you had for breakfast last week, let alone that show that you worked on seven years ago on that one episode, three seasons ago, that type of thing. So 
with that without being out there the episode where they were talked into getting rid of um plastic bags from the grocery store and they were all using those reusable bags and they ended up having like 10 or 12 times the amount of reusable bags which was damaging the ecosystem and the environment like whenever i see a reusable bag brought out the first thing i think of is we bear bears in that episode it's so fucking fun so but yeah i, I love that show it's so good um uh, let's see uh we got here um oh this one's a good one because we actually talked about this a little bit earlier uh but mike 213195 wants to know is he interested in taking on more adult content on the animation side yeah totally i think yeah. that's where you know that's where it's at i think adult content is like we talked about earlier it's booming and i think um i think interestingly i think kids content it's going to have a little bit of a tougher time now with the streaming services, but um, adult is on the rise. So for sure. Absolutely. Uh, 21 nasty Nas wants to know, um, are there any shows out there that you would be interested in bringing back? Do you think a show out there, would you would love to see one more season, maybe wrap it up that was left open-ended from cartoon? Um, yeah. yeah. It'd be great to see what Pat would do with more over the garden wall yeah kind of fun yeah it would be man uh oh this was a good one uh how does he think cartoon network can expand the nostalgic love fans have for the golden age of cartoon network mm. say the question again how could how could we how, how do you think cartoon network can expand the nostalgic love fans have for the golden age of cartoon network well, i guess I, mean, I think what they're doing now you know you see what their programming blocks are now right so for the yeah. 30th anniversary they've been throwing on some of the classics and um maybe they'll keep doing that i mean certainly that's one way just you know put some of those classics back on and see if you can maybe get a new audience to them yeah yeah man uh keep introducing Mm -hmm. uh, Spectre 2408 wants to know with the complete series DVD releases of Ed, Ed, and Eddie and Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends uh, soon to be coming. They're already out, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, is there any more physical media in the works for some other cartoons that were neglected from physical media releases? Obviously, you're not with Cartoon Network Studios anymore. Um, but when you were there, was do, do you remember them talking or having a concerted effort to kind of push out that physical media? No, no, no. It was just getting less and less as I was, you know in my days as i was getting ready to leave there was fewer and fewer things being released on physical media for sure do you think that's a good all, thing i think it's i don't think it's a great thing i mean i think because look what's happening now right they're pulling shows off of these streamers and you might not be able to find them anywhere and so if you don't have the physical media what are you going to do somebody yeah. was just telling me um that maybe there was one of these shows that was a write-off for one of these streamers and it could be bought though through maybe Amazon or something. And maybe you lose it as a result of the studios writing it off, which I, doesn't make sense to me that if you purchase something, you would lose it from your library, but I don't know. But yeah, physical media, there's nothing that's going to replace that. Absolutely. Uh, this one we can skip. I just thought it was really funny on how we started it. Um, and I, I cut off your name on the screenshot, so I apologize. Uh, they said, ask him in a hostile voice, do chicks dislike giant robots? We're talking mega sexual. Uh, do chicks dislike giant robots? Do you dislike giant robots? What about me? Do I dislike giant robots? 
what are you going to do with Megas XLR? Did you enjoy Megas XLR? That was a long-winded way of saying how much did you enjoy Megas XLR that was coming on. Megas was a great show. It was a fun show. It was totally different. Talk about diverse style. I mean, Megas yes. was like nothing else that we had done, certainly. Um, we went to a Japanese animation studio to... Um, it didn't end up actually being animated in Japan, but they definitely wanted the anime look. And I remember we went and uh, took it to a couple of Japanese animation studios to see if they could uh, if they could animate it. But am I a fan of giant robots? Absolutely. I mean, I was a fan of Gigantor. You know, I was yeah. like, you know, one of the first giant robots. So Frankenstein Jr. There's another one. So yeah, I love giant robots. Beautiful. Um... Fist of Gamera wants to know what show success surprised him the most and uh, what is it like working uh, on a show right before a show's first episode airs? Hmm. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, Adventure Time was a big surprise because it took off and became so big. So I would say that that would be. Was it big right out of the gate? No. No, it took. No, it took a little time. Yeah, yeah. certainly a little time. Um, in terms of what's it like before the first show airs, that's an interesting question because really it's pretty tense. Yeah. <laughs> Just because nobody really knows how the show is going to be received, so everybody is pretty wound up. And in terms of like the pressure is on, right? You know, the creators are very, you know, very protective of of what they're doing and want to make sure that everything is perfect. And, and it's a pretty tense time until you get, I would say actually until you get that first show back in animation and then the pressure starts being relieved because at least you see what it's going to look like. And then once it airs, then, you know, the pressure is then relieved again. There's a different pressure at that point in terms of ratings and the pressure of it's got to perform, but at least it's out there. And then, you know, you can kind of relax just because it, what will be will be at that point. I want to unpack this question just a little bit. Um, do you, this is a stupid question. Do you enjoy to eat? Do you like going out to restaurants? Are you a foodie? I hate using that term because it's it's got a a negative connotation to it sometimes. But do you enjoy going out to eat to restaurants yes, and stuff? I am a foodie. Yes. All right. Cool. Perfect, man. Because what I've what I've learned uh, since working in the restaurant industry is when a new place opens up. You don't judge it, no matter how good it is or how bad it is. In my opinion, you shouldn't judge a restaurant on anything really for the first six months to a year. Because when a new place opens up, you've got all of this crazy shit going on. It's the same thing when you guys were opening up the studio. You didn't know what you were going to use. 11 floors, let's put a different attraction on every one. Oh, fuck, that didn't work. So the next time you open up a studio, maybe you only do eight attractions, right? So it's the same thing with a restaurant. Now, with the show, uh, how long in general do you guys kind of give it the i guess the breathing time to like grow into what it what it's going to be obviously some shows you go, you'll sign on a creator for two seasons maybe or maybe it just be one um but is there a general rule of thumb on like how much room you guys give it to let it breathe i mean look it's the times have changed like there was a time when you would i mean the story of rugrats is when they first put rugrats on the air yeah. it didn't perform at all right? But it was all they had. So they just kept playing it and playing it and playing it. And eventually it found an audience yeah. because, because people just got used to it and they found it and they were like, oh, look at this. Yeah, I kind of like this. And then they started watching it. Sadly, 
as time went on, nobody had the wherewithal to do that anymore. And now with streaming and all the analytics, it's, it's never going to happen, right? So yeah. with, the, with streaming, first of all, you need a volume of episodes to be able to get any sort of traction. So if you don't have a, a number of episodes where people can really get into it, then how do you, you know, to your point, like, I think even the volume of episodes helps people, helps you build an audience. Mm -hmm. And nowadays with streaming, you might only get eight, eight episodes. Yeah. So is that going to work? And then you've got long gaps between seasons because streamers want to, they want to wait and see how it performs before they'll pick up the next eight episodes, you know? So it's very different time than it was before where we could, you know, we could do 26 episodes and eventually you would find an audience, you, you know, hopefully, but you know, in terms of how long did that take? Yeah, I mean, it would take several months before, you know, in the in the the bygone days, even it would take several months. And then that would depend on how are you promoting it, and are you, you know, are you are you pushing it on the channel, and how are you really getting it out there? And that's another thing you lose with streamers, right? You just they, your marketing is not the same when it's on a streamer, so you don't have the commercials to be able to push it. So. Yeah, times have definitely changed, but I get what you're saying, and you're right. I mean, things need time to find their their, their audience, audience, their yeah. clients, right? Yeah. Um, with something like Adventure Time, obviously, you guys didn't know. We've had this talk already. Um, you guys just didn't know. You never know with whatever show. You hope every show is a hit. You just don't know. Um, but with Adventure Time, do you remember roughly like how long? you guys were really watching and when it blew up was it in between seasons was it you know the first season you started to see a real big gain in traction yeah i mean i think it was definitely within the first season for sure we, yeah. we saw that it was starting to find an audience um because we wouldn't have picked up a second season if we didn't yeah. see that so for sure we saw it in the first season i, I comic-con the first year it was not not as big a deal. And then by the second year of Comic-Con, it was huge. And then as time went on, Comic-Con just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the cosplay was there and it was like, it became, you know, massive cultural hit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, sorry, I'm just looking through. Some of these are the, the, uh, the same ones. Um, this one's a good one. Uh, the Bad Batch wanted to know. Uh, my question is, what do you look for when deciding on whether a show goes to air or not? Is there any key factors that you, you got to make sure they check for certain boxes? You mean in terms of green lighting a show? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's always about story and characters, right? Mm -hmm. Are there characters that you want to you wanna see more of? Is there a story there that you want to follow? It's always what it comes down to, story and character story and characters beautiful um this one's fun uh chopping i'm sorry i can't even pronounce the rest of that uh what was your initial reaction when lucasfilm sold uh to disney uh there was a clone war a bunch of clone war fans that wrote in uh mm -hmm. but what was your initial reaction when lucas sold to disney mm -hmm. yeah i mean I, I guess a bit surprised but um you know, it's probably in a good place. It's probably a good move for him. You know, I think, um, 
Disney is a marketing machine, certainly. Yeah, no shit, man. <laughs> they will take care of that of that uh, of that brand, and you know, I think it was probably a good move for him. Absolutely. And uh, before I ask you the next part, when it comes to marketing, you might not be able to answer this uh, this question, but I, I figured I'd throw it out there anyways. Um, is there a designated amount in the budget that you guys would allot just to marketing, and would it be divvied up between? all the shows or would one show have more because of the popularity? How, how does that work? I guess. Yeah. It got harder as the, so yes, there is, there, there are shows, there's a certain marketing budget. Mm -hmm. There are certain shows that are become a priority and you focus on those shows. It got harder. The bigger the slate we had, the more new shows we had, the harder it was to, um, cause you wouldn't get, your budgets wouldn't necessarily go up. So let's say you had a marketing budget, in previous years that you'd have to support three new series with well now all of a sudden you have the same budget or not much more to support six new series so it definitely became a challenge as time went on and it was always it was always kind of a frustration for the creators that they felt their show wasn't being marketed enough but you had to prioritize ultimately you had to find ways to prioritize and, and that's what the marketing group would do i mean it, it was a collective decision on the cartoon network side not the studio side in terms of what the priorities would be but um yeah marketing's tricky absolutely um uh king oswald wants to know uh why were the first seasons of the clone wars more child targeted than the final seasons mm, that's not our clone wars so our clone wars was the gendy clone wars where we just had uh two two short yes. uh, seasons so i can't really answer that question <laughs> That's not the Gundy. The Gundy Clone Wars were the same, which were definitely older skewing. Beautiful. Uh, Cameron writes in, and uh, we got a couple more here. Um, when your time at Cartoon Network ended, how would you describe the feeling you felt? Were you at peace with uh, how it all turned out? Was there any sense of painfulness or loneliness at all? Most importantly, do you feel the last few years were mostly good? So there's a bunch of questions in that one question. There is a bunch of questions in that one yeah. question. I mean, I will say ultimately, yes, I was at peace. I could, I could see the, I could see the world was changing, and, and it has changed. And and the days that I was there are long gone. And um, I, I was totally at peace that this was the right thing to 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 do. Um, so what are the other parts of that question? The other ones were, um, how would you describe the feelings you felt? Uh, you said you were at peace. Yeah. I was at peace. What else? <laughs> uh, was there any sense of painfulness or loneliness at all? No, I mean, except for, you know, you go to a job for 21 years, you know, and you see all those people. The weird thing for me when I left was because the pandemic was still going on. That was the hardest part about leaving was that I wasn't in, a, in the studio where all the people were. So it was harder to to say goodbye because yeah. I, were, you know i wasn't in a physical place to say goodbye to people so that was the hardest part about leaving um but it was definitely you know the right time beautiful um and then this one this one cameron always has some of the most thoughtful questions and i really enjoy when he writes in uh if you could go back in time and relive seeing any episode of any show for the first time to experience the newness and excitement of all over again, what would that show be? Hmm. 
Mm, I mean, again, I'm going to probably go back to Samurai, Jack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's, that's a great one to have. Um, Primal was pretty incredible, too, though, I will say. The first episode of Primal was pretty incredible. I've went back. There's there's a couple episodes that I go back and I, I watch at least once, maybe twice a month. Um, Red Mist, I've watched every, I've watched it at least once a week since that 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 one aired, and that was the one where uh, Spear and Fang raided the. Um, they were trying to save Mira, so they raid the uh, the encampment where they have all of the slaves, and then mm-hmm. the Red Mist rolls in, and then they all just go ape shit. No pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought that was that episode. It's that episode. Did you ever watch Invincible when it dropped a couple years ago on mm-hmm. Amazon? Mm-hmm. Um, so that train scene up until Primal was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Where um, fuck, I can't, I can't think of the guy's name. Uh, Omni Man uh, takes his son and then just smashes him through subways, destroying people like they were ants. Because that's what he calls them. Calls them ants. And up until I saw Primal, I was like, I'm watching Invincible. I was like, this is the craziest shit I've ever seen in my life. And I was just like. This is, I don't even know how this is happening. This is like one of the single, and how gruesome it was and how disgusting it was just seeing people blow up and shit. I was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in animation. And then you see the Red Mist episode. And I'm like, man, that makes it look like Sesame Street. It was insane. Like I said, nothing but great things uh, for me to say about Primal. Um, got like two more here. Um, I will skip that one. Uh <sighs> I don't. I try not to ask these ones, but I think it's a pretty good one. Um, they wanted to know a bit of a controversial question. Do you believe Cartoon Network has lost its sense of innovation over the years? Mm. I don't want you to get in any trouble. So if you don't feel comfortable, no, and- I'm not. I'm not a Cartoon Network, so I'm not going to get in trouble. But I know, but it might ruffle some feathers. Here's the, here's the interesting thing. Not a lot has happened since I've left Cartoon Network, right? So there hasn't been anything really new. Baby Bears was in production when I was leaving. There's been nothing new on that I've seen from Cartoon Network since I left. Um, in terms of the days when I was there, I mean, you know, look, we had our bumps in the road, I would say. There were times when we probably, you know, we went through periods where it was like, no, this has to be very much a kid six to 11 show. We're not making shows for ourselves. Make sure you do this. And, you know, and those were times I think where we had missteps, but basically I think we always tried to be innovative. Um, I can't tell you where it's going to go from here, but um, I think during my time, we were always trying to be innovative. Well, uh, I got to say, man, if they, they ever get the chance to have you, Linda, Fred, Betty, Mike, and so many other folks come back. I really think that they could dig themselves out of this. Can't remember what they said. It was like twenty billion dollar hole or fucking ten billion dollar hole they seem to be in. I feel like you could bring them back from the the brink of extension, <laughs> uh, Brian. <laughs> um, all right. So this is the last one. Uh, this one actually came up with uh, Linda's episode too, but I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Um, my question for Brian is if he knows the story of uh, how the unaired Dexter's Lab episode Rude Removal and the Dawn and Gendy story were greenlit and produced. 
if I recall correctly, he was the executive in charge of production for at least one of these episodes. Um, so do you have any stories about those two episodes that they, and like I said, I'm not a professional on, on Brian here or any of this shit that he's talking about. I yeah. only know a little bit of it from what I've read online and then what Linda's uh, said in her couple episodes as well. Uh, but do you have anything that sticks out for those two episodes in particular? Right. So root removal would have been root removal was already in production by the time I started. So I don't know how it got greenlit. What was the other one though? Root removal and what? Uh, the Dawn and Gendy story. So I don't know that one. I don't know what that is, but yeah, I whatever Linda told you, she'd know better than that. She would have been the one who greenlit root, root removal. So okay. she's definitely with, it's an amazing episode. But, you know, I think for us, we had a similar... I mean, it wasn't like root removal yet in some ways it was we did a the powerpuff girls opera yes which was uh which didn't air for a long time because they felt it couldn't air in a kid's block um it ended up in fact airing on adult swim before it ever aired on uh, cartoon but um it was it was uh it was quite an episode <laughs> if you haven't <laughs> seen it it was quite an episode so julian thanks so much no problem, man. This has been a lot of fun, man. Uh, where can the fans go and say, hey, Brian, I love that stuff you did. Uh, if, you, if you wanted to reach out or is there anything you're working on now that we can kind of push traffic towards that the fans should know about? I know you dropped, uh, yeah, I mean, was it Fired uh, on Mars? Yeah, Fired on Mars, HBO Max, which is going to premiere sometime next year. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. It's at BFredMugs. So. And just a question, how'd you come up with Fred Mugs? So Fred Muggs was a monkey that was on the Today Show back in the uh, the 60s. Mm -hmm. And um, I was always a fan of monkeys and yeah. I just took on that Fred Muggs. Uh, <laughs> when I was creating email names at the time, I was like, oh, Fred Muggs, I'm just going to use the monkey's name and it just stuck. So Beautiful. Be Fred Muggs. And you just dropped it right there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll pick this back up uh, at a later date. Uh, what can the fans expect that we might talk about the next time you're on? I know we, we focused on a very narrow, narrow part of Cartoon Network history, mainly the part that, you know, kind of shaped my my morale, my my moral compass, you know, my my life essentially as a little kid uh, to almost 2008, 2009. And I kind of gave up on animation until the regular show. Um, but what are some of those series in, in, in that that time frame, probably from like 2009 to, to the end of your tenure uh, that we might talk about the next time you're on? Yeah, I mean, I feel bad because we spent a lot of time talking about some very specific shows, probably a lot of the shows that first come to mind when people think of the studio. But really, in the course of 21 years, during my tenure, I mean, there were 50 to 60 series, different series that were done. There were, you know, equally as many pilots, probably twice as many pilots. And you know, not to mention the specials and the movies and the feature film, the Powerpuff Girls feature film, the only theatrical the studio ever did. I mean, there's so much more. So, uh, you know, it's like even when we talked about, you know, what were my favorite shows, I, I was sort of in that mode of like, oh, thinking about those shows that are yeah. we've been talking about. But there is so many more shows that 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 you, we could talk about and the newer shows are amazing i mean julia pot summer camp island she's done an amazing job with that craig of the creek is a fantastic show apple and onion victor and valentino these are all the the later shows we we bear bears i mean these were shows that in and of themselves were 
you know, at a whole other time, but equally part of that Cartoon Network um, uh, tone and feel. And so, yeah, happy to come back and talk more about all of those. And uh, sorry, we didn't get into much of that this time, but lots to talk about. Beautiful. Awesome, man. Well, he's been Brian. I've been Julian. This has been a What's in My Head podcast, and it's been another piece of your childhood. Good night. My guest next week for our very special Halloween edition episode of the podcast is Mr. Jody Gray, the composer for Courage the Cowardly Dog. Enjoy the teaser. But the most fun stuff was when we played live instruments in the room. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we played instruments that we didn't know how to play. Like I played flute on a lot of stuff in Courage. I don't know how to play flute. So I go, <laughs> it was like, what the hell is that sound? I don't know. So it was experimental and fun. And, you know, Andy and I would laugh and laugh. John would come in and he would say, that sucks or something. He would never say that, but he would, he would force us to do something else. You know, it was, it was a constant thing. It was like a big sandbox, you yeah. know? And we just went crazy. And we were really lucky in that, um, speaking of Linda Semensky, Linda Semensky, um, was a big advocate of John mm -hmm. and she got John the gig, I, I guess. I don't know how it all worked out, but at the end of the day, um, you know, one of the things that John did, which was really cool, was he wanted to pay tribute to Linda for helping him out. So he had Muriel play sitar, which Linda Semensky played. Really? So that is Linda Semensky. Mm -hmm in most of those sequences with Muriel. Like Andy and I use samples and stuff, but we had Linda go into a studio in Atlanta and just record a whole bunch of tuning up and playing different stuff. It was just so cool because she was good, but you know, Muriel wasn't supposed to be that great. So Linda did this lovely stuff and it just worked. It was crazy. It was so much fun. That's we gotta use these sitar pieces for Linda. It's great.